Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. We're here live at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference, and we're here with Dr. Spencer Tomberg. I'm a physician in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Orthopedics at Denver Health, and I'm the director of our didactic education for the emergency medicine residency. And sports medicine guru. To some extent. Yeah. 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 <laughs> nice. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. We just listened to a lecture that you gave on pain management. Really great lecture that went into really like in depth with receptors and physiology and stuff like that. So that that was really cool. We're going to touch on just some of the main points of that lecture. Starting off, you talked about there are a lot of different ways we perceive pain and pain is almost like a philosophical answer as to what even is pain. Yeah. For me, that was the most interesting thing to get the idea that there's a physical process that transmits pain through the body, but then there's also the big emotional component. And we, I think we're really good at focusing on treating the physical part of it, but there's a whole kind of how do we perceive pain? It's different for all three of us and it's different for everybody out there. You know, one question is how is it different for people, but also how can we support people in those other ideas of the emotional aspect of pain too? Yeah, and a one treatment approach for everyone. Yeah. Maybe not. So and taking yeah. in that whole like biopsychosocial component yeah. when you're thinking about a human being. Yeah. One of the things along those lines to go deep in one perspective was you mentioned the action potential and some of the yep. synaptic regions is actually measurably different for some people. Yeah. So there's actually ways now to measure how my perception of pain is different from, let's say, yours. Is that accurate? Yeah. So for a nerve to fire, you have to change the voltage across the cell, basically. There's definitely talk about patients with chronic pain, how more pain receptors get put into their neurons, and so they just fire easier. So we take care of a lot of people that say, I have a really high pain threshold. And that made me think a little bit about, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's actually that their pain receptors have been set up in a way where they're just getting pain signals all the time. You know, the difference between firing at negative 40 millivolts to negative 10 millivolts is significant enough that bumping your leg on a table might send you into a full pain crisis where for another person, it might be that you break your ankle. That actually might be the same signaling that gets to people. We're always trying to build compassion a little bit. And I think that that helps to get an idea of what other people might be experiencing. Another aspect of that that I found interesting was you discussed a little bit about how pain is handled within the visceral system or the organs within your abdomen and how some of those don't actually even go through the spinal tract and then how some of those do and they kind of synapse on areas that are synapsed by other body parts and that's where we get our referred pain. Yeah, most of what happens in our extremities and our skin goes through the spinal cord and that's where all those signals go up. But the viscera itself, a lot of that will travel up actually up the vagal nerve and so those signals that come from the intestines or the liver are taking a totally different track that comes up. And that's why our patients that have spinal cord injuries still can come in and say, something's not right in my abdomen. I'm still feeling pain. And I think in the back of my head, sometimes I've gone, well, how, how does that work? I mean, you have a T7 spinal cord injury. How can you tell me there's pain in your lower abdomen? And that's because they're taking different tracks up. And then some of those signals actually come up and they will cross into the cord but instead of having their own tracks that they take, they grab on to fibers that are coming from other parts of the body. And so that's where some of that referred pain can come from is that we're getting signals from two parts of the body that are going to the brain and saying, yeah, this is the shoulder where this is coming from, but it actually might be that it's a spleen that's causing it. Right. Yeah. And so how do we, how do we do it treating pain in the emergency setting? How do we do? Yeah. 
I mean, the the studies are that we don't do that great. Um, oh, I and, feel great. Yeah. <laughs> You're patient, though, not yeah. so much. Yeah. You know, either between us in the ICU and acute trauma, about 75% of patients say they don't have adequate pain control. And I think we see that pretty consistently. And part of this is that we might be on top of it. And our medics, you know, might be completely on top of it. Get 100 of fentanyl. They're doing okay when they're walking through the door. And we look at them and say, oh, that's fantastic. The person's doing good. Not thinking that that medicine's going to be gone in 45 minutes or an hour, and we're not making that bridge. Other times, we may just not feel comfortable giving them the right amount of pain medications because it's going to change another part of our evaluation. And we need to be thoughtful about that as well, too. Another thing you mentioned was our biases to certain patient populations. Yeah. People that have known drug use disorders don't get the same kind of pain control, and they probably need more. I mean, if you're already acclimated to high doses of opiates, we probably need to get you more to be to get where you want to be. And you know, there's times where I've gotten uncomfortable with how much medications we need to give people just because, you know, like two of Dilaudid seems like a high dose, but sometimes that doesn't touch people's pain if they're already on high dose opiates, either recreationally or if they're on therapeutic doses that way. So that population for sure, there's been studies that have looked at how we treat different racial populations in terms of pain control. And we don't do as well with the minority patients that we do with our white male population. And so I just think we need to be thoughtful of that and kind of just check ourselves as we're going into the room to make sure that we're coming with a clean slate. In that vein, one thing you mentioned that was interesting to me was acutely injured trauma patients that we're seeing or picking up on the ambulance, a high percentage of them probably already have opiates in their system. Yeah, that brings up a lot. And it's not just opiates. I mean, it's alcohol, it's opiates, it's meth, and you know, all of those change both the physical component of it, but also the emotional component of where they're at. If somebody is already on opiates and they're in trauma, I think it's really case by case. I don't know how we could look at this across the board. So if they're acutely intoxicated to the point where their respiratory drive is already going down, that's a different patient than somebody who's on methadone and fell and broke their leg. That patient that's on methadone long-term, we probably have to be pretty aggressive about getting on top of their pain. The literature I found was that about one in five patients that we treat with trauma already have opiate use habits. That's a big part. I mean, that's 20% of people that walk through the door that we need to make sure that we're hitting those numbers for. And, you know, I think when some people take a step back, they're like, okay, so what? It hurts. Big deal. Why do we care? But you went into some of the impacts of pain on people's healing and, and some of those other things. I'd be interested to hear you hit some of those, yeah. some of that web. So I think the big ones that we think about in the hospital are a lot of the neurologic problems with it. The rates of delirium when we don't treat pain actually go up quite a bit. And that we know leads to worse outcomes and longer hospital stays. But there's also changes to the endocrine system. The endogenous steroids that get put out, that whole access changes if pain's not changed well. Wound healing changes. So if we don't treat pain, wounds don't heal. And there's cardiovascular changes. There's pulmonary changes. When people are on ventilators, they're not sinking with the vent. They're fighting that. And all of this together, taken as a whole, puts people in a higher risk category, either of having complications in the hospital or having long-term complications when they're going home. You mentioned at the biochemical level, some different modalities. So opiate receptors, NMDA receptors, and then some of the, you know, like NSAIDs and Tylenol and that sort of thing. As a paramedic, the mainstay has always been opiates. <laughs> and then ketamine got introduced. And then like, I work in a place now where we carry Toradol as well. And so people can tend to overcomplicate some of these things. Like we're making a sauce. Like I'm getting a little bit of this yeah. and a little bit of that. But sometimes I'm like, just stick with fentanyl. It's easy. It works quick. It's effective. 
as you dug into this, did any of what you learned change your practice in the emergency department? In my mind, it's still split up a little bit between like the acute, acute time, which is going to be in the field and in the emergency department. And then once we get people to the ICU where we're talking about days of these treatments and what the impacts are, I kind of agree with you. I mean, if you have something that works really well and fentanyl is a medication for that, that you can give people, you can get them comfortable enough, you can monitor their respiratory status, you can stop when you need to. I think if you have a horse that works well, you might as well just keep riding it, right? But, you know, there are times where I'll mix stuff too. Like we'll give pain dose ketamine when those opiates don't work well and we were looking for that second action, then the ketamine tends to come out more. I also think that I'll go to that more when they are our chronic opiate patients and we're just not able to get where I want to be in terms of their pain control with opiates alone, then where those second line medications come in. Tortol, I think, is one of the interesting medications. The complications from bleeding from non-steroidal medications are relatively low, but they're definitely higher with Tortol. I think it can be a really good medication. I try to stay away from it if I'm worried about like anything going on in the head. Probably not with great data behind it, but it's just maybe it's a little reflexive to try not give that acutely if I don't know what's going on full trauma-wise. I like your thought of breaking it up between the time set of the pain. So maybe in the acute setting, opiates may be your first go-to. And then you talked about some alternatives for scenarios or if those aren't working. But then there's also this multimodal approach, which I kind of think of in the interim. And then after that is the chronic pain. And so let's talk about each of those. First, let's talk about the multimodal approach you talked about. Yeah. So in ICU settings, there's been a lot of studies that looked at how do we not use opiates exclusively and have all the complications of GI, sedation, respiratory problems, and then addiction going on long-term from it. And so in those studies, what they've looked at is what happens if we throw like gabapentin in with it? What if we put Tylenol in it? What if we put NSAIDs in it? And those approaches cut down opiate use a ton. And the other outcomes that we're worried about in terms of length of stay and complications in the hospital and the amount of pain that people have are about equivalent. So I think in those cases, when people are in the ICU or are more of our long-term patients, that those multimodal approaches are fantastic. And I think most centers are probably adopting those, even though I don't work in the ICU from talking to people there, that's what they're doing. I see a lot of people with chronic pain because of my work that I do in the orthopedic clinics. And I use multimodal pain a bunch there too. That's where we're doing injections and we use a lot of gabapentin and Tylenol and ibuprofen And sometimes the answer for people that sometimes they like and sometimes they don't is that we have to attack this from all the sides. Like this is not a simple one bullet kind of problem. We really need to get in there and hit it from everything. And then we're going to get you to where you're relatively comfortable. You can live your life. You can do the things that you like to do with the idea too. We're not going to get you down to zero, but we're going to get you where you can be functional and like what you're doing. And we do see some chronic pain in the emergency department. What's your initial approach to those patients? My first thing is to try to listen to them. And to try to get an idea of where they're coming from and just to hear the story of what they've gone through. And I think a lot of times people want to tell you that story. So I think that's the first thing that I try to get time, even though it's busy, to try to get myself to take a couple breaths. And really, it's like giving them 35 seconds to a minute of my time to hear that. And then I'll think about what people have done and what I'm comfortable about adding on. And there are times where I'm comfortable adding on a medicine like gabapentin if they're really a chronic pain patient and they're not on it and they have a condition that might be helped by it. And we do it safely where we kind of build it up slowly. Or if they're not taking Tylenol, something as simple as Tylenol, I'll make sure that we're working on that level. I'm generally not comfortable starting things like antidepressants and TCAs, which I want somebody to monitor more. But there's medicines that I think are pretty safe that we can probably increase some of our impact on the chronic pain side too. Do you ever use like Haldol or the antidopaminergics in the emergency setting? It's a good question. I 
Yeah, I use them all the time. Uh, <laughs> do I acutely use them for pain? Not necessarily for pain. When I think about the emotional component of pain, so a lot of what we talked about was the difference between the signals of pain and the emotional components that go around the outside. I think that medicines like Haldol and Draperidol can be helpful when there is a very strong overlap between the two, and we need to decouple that. Those are medicines that can help us kind of separate the emotions from the physical component of what's going on. And then I think once that breaks happens, then we can kind of reset what's going on pain-wise for people. That's how I go about it. I'm not sure if you guys go about it different ways or... Yeah, no, I mean, I can't say that I've ever used them in the pre-hospital setting for that. I have somewhat, to your point, in treating that emotional aspect of the chronic pain in the emergency department. I had an attending who once told me, we can't always treat their pain, but we can help their suffering. Uh, and that's kind of my philosophy with with that in the emergent, like the acute on chronic setting. Yeah, I mean, only speaking from an ambulance where we had fentanyl and haldol and then droperidol. If there was a component of nausea to their chronic pain, I think Haldol was effective with that. And then just listening to them, like you said, when there seems to be a lot of psychosocial factors to this whole thing, and maybe they even talk about some diagnosed psych stuff that comes along with all this, I think Haldol can be beneficial. But I think it does really depend on the right situation. <laughs> And sorry, one more thing to add on to that. So many pre-hospital agencies now are stocking ketamine. And, you know, we're kind of taught pain dose, disassociative dose. And then in the middle is this like off to see the wizard territory that we're kind of scared of. You did touch on that. What, are there negative side effects happening when we maybe do put someone into that hallucinogen state, the K-hole? Oh, yeah. I've seen a couple bad things happen when people have gone into the K-hole, and it looks to be a place of psychiatric pain that you're seeing, where things are brought up that I've had it once with a military vet who actually we gave the full dose to and was coming out. I talked to him beforehand if he had PSTSD, said no, he obviously did because we heard about it and over and over again for you know a half an hour of him reliving some of this stuff. And I've seen another patient particularly who we got into the K-hole who just like tripped over a psychiatric wire that you don't want to have anybody go into. And so I think there is a real risk of getting people into that. So the low doses are 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kg. So in general, that's about 10 to 20 milligrams of ketamine. And we can really move towards that 10 milligram dose or 0.1 mg per kg. That, the recent studies have shown that that's just as effective as the 0.3 mg per kg. So that's great. We can use the low dose of it. If we accidentally dose them into that like half a mg per kg zone, and we start to get people there. The nice part is you can fully disassociate them and just give them the other half a mig per kig to get them to a full mig per kig and kind of jump out of that a little bit. But it's definitely a place that I have not enjoyed when people have gotten there. And then there's just a couple other things with ketamine that I think we just need to think about because it's one of those medications that we use a lot and good stuff almost always happens. But when the bad stuff happens, it can be an issue. One is laryngospasm. And we were just talking about this on shift the other day. That, you know, people talk about doing a very forceful kind of jaw thrust for it or trying to give positive pressure ventilation, but that it really doesn't work. And that the answer is that they need to be paralyzed and intubated if that occurs. That's one thing to think about is that if the glottis is locked shut, people can't get air out and that's bad. And so it needs to be addressed pretty quickly. And then another thing that can happen is you can get a lot of salivation with it. And so things like atropine can take that down if you need to. You know, sometimes we'll give it to people who are in respiratory distress to help them like sync with BiPAP and kind of calm that down or just be able to have oxygen on and that will help. But if they start to salivate a lot, that can become an issue. So 
those kind of things just to know that they could happen and know what to do on the backside, I think are important. Yeah. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, to sort of summarize with ketamine, obviously follow your local protocol, consult your local medical director. But if you're intending to give the pain dose and you do feel like you're causing, you've accidentally put them into that distressed psychological state, go ahead and probably fully disassociate them is probably a little more of a humane thing to do with awareness to those side effects, the hypersalivation, the laryngospasm. Yeah. So it'd be safer to not get them there in the first place. Protocol, obviously follow your local protocol, but that would be a good strategy if you feel like they're in distress. Is that fair yeah, to say? That's, that's yeah. fair. And then the last thing just to bring up is that these medicines do potentiate each other a little bit. I worked with a physician who liked to give, I think it was 50 of fentanyl, two of Versed, and like 10 to 15 of ketamine. And patients would dissociate all the time. And so that's a very low dose of ketamine, but you would get them for about five to 10 minutes where they would have nystagmus and be dissociative. And so just to know if you are mixing these, you might get a more potentiated effect of the ketamine and just be prepared for that as well too. Well, thanks so much, Spencer. I think this is a super important topic. The pendulum does feel like it has swung a little bit with the opiate crisis to where we are a little more resistant to treat patients' pain. But I think in the emergency setting, there are a lot of good medical reasons for healing that it is important to treat people's pain in the acute setting. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks so much, Yeah, appreciate it.